Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? Welcome to episode 13, our first episode of 2019. This year is shaping up to be a very interesting year of interviews. In addition to the standard one-on-one interview format, we'll also be using the panel discussion format. I'm hoping that the panel format will allow us to better explore a number of different perspectives on a question within one podcast. And to make sure that we've had enough time to explore the ideas of all the panelists, we'll be aiming for longer podcast interviews. We'll also be moving from releasing podcasts once a month to a every other month format. So fewer podcasts per year, but much longer podcasts. When I launched this podcast a year ago, I did so because I believed that although there were many people talking about how serious our environmental situation was, there was far too little discussion about realistic strategies for pulling back from the damage we're doing to our biosphere and coping with the serious future impacts resulting from that damage. And a year later, it's even more clear how serious our environmental situation really is. Made especially clear since the release of the IPCC's most recent report. So, I think it's even more important now that we increase our efforts to look for concrete strategies for both meeting these challenges and figuring out how to change our behavior on a worldwide scale necessary to implement these strategies. In this year's podcast, we are definitely planning to talk with guests who are developing concrete strategies to meet the environmental challenges we face, as well as guests that are trying to implement those strategies. In addition to exploring how we meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative, we're also planning to produce a podcast that explores how listeners can deal with the stress and anxiety of a climate-changing future. In our first podcast in March, I will interview Dr. Wendy Pentland. Wendy is a former professor of rehabilitation therapy at the Faculty of Health Sciences at Queen's University, who is now devoting her time to life and executive coaching. Her approach as a coach is grounded in the belief that people are motivated primarily by two desires, the desire to fulfill their own potential and the desire to make a meaningful contribution in the world. In her podcast interview, I will talk with Wendy about how to better understand the nature of the stress and anxiety we are experiencing and the kinds of questions we can ask and the things we can do to better maintain our mental equilibrium as we each work in our own ways towards meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative. The idea for this upcoming podcast was a response to what I have been hearing from listeners over the past year. I've heard from many of you that, although you have told me that you have been very inspired by the ideas and experience of the guests I've interviewed, You've also told me you are very worried about the future and are not sure whether or not you will actually be able to make a difference, and for that matter, not even sure a difference can be made. I have heard a number of expressions of future anxiety and deep pessimism about our species' ability to deal with the huge existential problems we now face, 
especially escalating climate change and its many calamitous impacts. There are clearly no easy answers and no easy fixes to the terrible environmental and social problems we now face. But I continue to believe that however dark the future may seem, pessimism and defeatism are not going to help. So, until our next podcast with Wendy in March, I thought it might be worthwhile for us to recall some of the thoughts our previous podcast guests had about hope and optimism in the face of the tremendous challenges ahead for us. So the following is a compilation of excerpts of some of the conversations I had with guests about hope and optimism. One of the most compelling cases made for hope and optimism in the face of the serious environmental challenges we face is made by Jeff Schnur in our first episode last year. Jeff and I talked about the hope that emerges out of working for something you care about and believe in. As you may recall, Jeff is the chairman of Community Force International and the CEO of Jazza Energy, an energy tech startup in East Africa that is building a network of renewable energy hubs and communities beyond the electrical grid. Here is part of our conversation about hope. One of the most memorable and meaningful books I, I read as a young man was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And I remember one of the, the key things he said was, those who have a why to live can bear almost any how. When we look at all of Earth's environmental vital signs, our current predicament is, by any measure, quite dire, obviously. So what gives you hope? What keeps you going? I mean, the people that I've been able to work with that by all accounts should be hopeless. And the spark that you see in, in the farmer, the, the person working in forestry, the, the person that's just questioning and, and striving for more and asking themselves why and then able to make that change. Like I, I believe that I mean, that's, it's, it's just when you see see these people around the world and the people you work with being able to pull things off and, and make that impact, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly inspiring. And for me, in terms of why, like, I just, I couldn't, there's, I couldn't live for anything else. Like, I see a problem and I you know, like I'm, I'm now starting a, this solar energy initiative in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, you look at the stats and it's like, well, one in every 10 businesses fail and, you know, startups are hard. And it's just like, we'll have the courage. Right. I think we lack that courage, especially as Canadians. I think we do. And even the business community, like, you know, your, your business needs to be solving a real pain point, right? Why not solve the biggest pain points? Like, it's hard for people to share photos on an app, like, so build a better app. Like, that's just, it's, I, I just think it lacks courage. And I think we should take on the biggest problems and realize, well, let's use everything at our disposal. And I think it's just, what, what do you want to be, succeed at? Set, set the compass and, and go for it. In our second episode, I talk with Ryan Myers about whether our species would be able to pull back from the brink of environmental disaster and what gave Ryan hope for the future. As you may recall, Ryan is one of the world's leaders in quantifying natural capital and currently a data scientist in Integrate AI. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. What do you think? Are we going to be able to pull back from the brink of environmental disaster as a species when, when we have 
um, a significant portion of our species actually not buying into it. I mean, this this is a sort of all hands on deck problem. Yeah. And if if you can't get that buy in, it's going to be very difficult. Well, what do you think? Can are we going to be able to do this? I mean, you're, you're you're developing the tools in a very positive, proactive way, but are, are we going to be able to pull this thing off? Well, I don't know, obviously, but I I like to be optimistic and think that we will. Um, it would be pretty dark if I was working in this industry and thought that we were just doomed. <laughs> yeah. But um, Fair enough. I think that where there's, I truly believe that where there's a will, there's a way. And we have, we have the technology, we have the capacity to make these changes. We honestly just have to do it. Again, that, that article really kind of gave me a little bit of hope in the sense that at least there's some sort of path that, that still exists where we can move towards decarbonizing our uh, atmosphere enough that we make the, or avoid catastrophe essentially. There's one other thing I want to mention. So when I was in undergrad in third year, I took this course that I, it was probably one of the top two more interesting, most interesting courses that I took in undergrad at Queens University. And it was called The Evolutionary Ecology of Humans. And I loved it because it was talking about the major problems that we faced as humanity in the next 50 years. And going to try and do this off the top of my head, but I think they were um, climate change, water shortage, food shortage, peak oil, overpopulation, and resistance to... Oh, oh yeah, superbugs. Uh, superbugs. Yeah, exactly. So those were the six main problems. And it was really interesting because the course was divided up. And by the way, the book for the course was Guns, Germs, and Steel, which also is a really good book. But the course was divided up into six sections with each each section dedicated to one of those problems and so each section would start off and say what the problem was and then the next uh part of the section would say what the solution to the problem was and then the third part would say why we weren't going to solve the problem because of x y and z examples in history and how humans behave so it was like a roller coaster of emotions for a course you'd leave the first part of each section being like, wow, this is crazy. How are we going to solve it? Second part feeling super optimistic and the third part feeling super depressed. <laughs> and so um, the way that I ended up not feeling super depressed at the end of that course. Oh, and I should say that was one of the reasons that I decided to go to climate change as well. Those were the six main problems. And I was totally on board with that. And I thought, well, that would be an interesting one to, to, to try to tackle or be a part of tackling. But an important course, then it was a really good, yeah, very important co- course for me. But the thing that stopped me from feeling pessimistic at the end of that course was thinking about the numbers around the number of people that are working on each of those problems. So we've got 7 billion people on the planet now. And I remember just thinking to myself, okay, 7 billion people, and we've got these six main problems. Let's just say conservatively that there's like 100,000 people which is a very small number in the scheme of things, working on each of these problems. So there's like, you know, just over a half a million people working on these problems. Okay, let's say like we take the top one percentile of those 100,000 each, in each group that are like the, the brightest people working on these problems. There's still a thousand people working on each of these problems around the world. And I'm like, you know what? Like a thousand of the brightest, of the world's brightest, and then you've got 99,000 other people. And of course, those numbers are super low. I'm sure it's in like the 
millions or tens of millions or even higher than that, depending on the problem like climate change. So that kind of gives me hope is that there are so many people working on these problems, putting their their lives, their their careers behind solving these problems. And so that's kind of that that keeps it, me optimistic. It reminds me of uh, what the former president of the Czech Republic and poet the late Václav Havel once asked. He said, "Isn't it the moment of most profound doubt that gives birth to new certainties? Perhaps hopelessness is the very soil that nourishes human hope." And and you and you talked about your hope. What given our global environmental uh, predicament, what what things nourish your hope? In addition to what I just mentioned about the number of people working on climate change, trying to solve the problem, um, I would say the views of the younger generation also give me hope. So there's a lot of, uh, what's the next generation, Gen Z? Is that I think so. Generation Z um, people. Oh, the millennials I, are pretty young right now too. Yeah, I know. So the millennials give me hope too. But I would say both of those millennials, Gen Y and Gen Z, there is so like we all recognize that this is our problem. Yeah, well, it, the the boomers, my generation, have stuck you guys with <laughs> these problems. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. So well, yeah. So I mean, the buy-in and the understanding, I think, is going to skyrocket as I mean, the millennials are already in the workforce, but as Gen Z also starts entering the workforce. So I, I would say that gives me some hope as well. Is you know we need more people who truly believe in this problem, or I should shouldn't use the word believe, understand the problem, and are willing to make the what I would consider to be the right decisions to get on track towards fixing it in a big way. And uh, the two those two generations, I think, um, are going to be in positions to do that. In episode four, I spoke with Klaus Hoppe one of the world's authorities on low carbon and smart city planning. And even though Klaus will tell you it was a team effort, Freiburg, Germany's international status as one of the greenest cities in the world owes a great deal to Klaus's vision and commitment to creating sustainable cities. At one point in our conversation, Klaus and I talked about Václav Havel's comment about optimism and what keeps Klaus going when things look dark. Here's an excerpt of our conversation. It's often been said that optimism is essential for progress. So I'd like to ask you about optimism and to frame it with a quotation. Um, just after Václav Havel had been made president of Czechoslovakia after the communist regime collapsed, he was asked whether he was an optimist. And he responded by saying, no, I'm not an optimist in the sense that I believe that everything will go well but neither am I a pessimist in the sense that I believe everything will go wrong. I am hopeful, for without hope, there will be no progress. Hope is as important as life itself. I, I thought it was a wonderful response. So, Klaus, what gives you hope? What keeps you going when things are looking dark? Uh, honestly, Greg, now we should stop our interview because this is, I like, I like this, uh, this, these words from, from uh, the, the Czech uh, president as well. It's it, it's really Havel was one of my heroes. Yeah, it, it's it's really it's really great. So what what can I say? Small guy like me, he thought he was a small guy too. Yeah, we we have the same size. So I I like to say these things with songs, you know, and I I think there is a song uh, quite old. Uh, I don't know who sang it. It uh, 
it is like simple things mean a lot to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Simple things that only children can see. There are no uh, and and so on. Yeah. So and I I think I, as well I'm quite simply simple minded. So if there is there's a good song, if there's sunshine on my skin, yeah, uh, this gives me this gives me a feeling of not of hope. It's it, of course it's as well. It's religion. It's my yoga practice that I do. It's my family and uh, of course it's a nice soccer kick. Yeah, gives me a lot of. Uh, of courage, but I really think that these are the simple things. Yeah, the, the the moments when we are quiet and we are in balance with the things that are outside and inside of us, mm-hmm. which are rare. And if you recognize that there's such a moment when the sun comes up and after a rainy day, yeah. So this is when I feel connected with everything because everything is connected, and this is why. We have the internet, yeah, but I think we still comprehend the internet in a much too technical way. Everything is connected on this planet. Every Mm -hmm. human soul ever had been here and will be there. So, and these moments give me hope. In episode five, I spoke with Mike Williams about what gave him hope for the future. Mike now leads RWDI's Toronto office as the principal responsible for sustainable engineering. And we talked about his inherent optimism and his belief that the next generation will really make a difference. Here's part of our conversation. One of the questions I'm asking all of um, my guests is, is one about their thoughts, and I'm asking you and your thoughts, on whether or not we're going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these challenges. Earlier on in our conversation, you talked about the significance and severity of, of the challenges we face. What gives you hope for the future? What keeps you going when things look really dark? I think uh, inherently, maybe, maybe thankfully, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, and I think that maybe... Um, thinking bigger picture, some of the things that are changing that I think are for the better. I, I do look at the, the millennials and, and the, I think, the, I think it's Gen Z is what we're calling the, the folks after them. And I, I look at some of their ap- approaches to inclusivity and uh, riding the streetcar the other day. And there was four kids from clearly different backgrounds. Uh, they didn't even speak the same language and they were laughing and having a jovial time, you know, and I, I think that there is some real hope in the way that future generations are, are looking at things. I think that they do care more deeply about some of the big problems that we have. And so I think we will see some change happen as a result. Um, I think tangential to enjoying engineering and engineering science and buildings, I also really like technology. And I think technology, well, it can spiral quickly out of control. It also presents tremendous opportunity. And so you look at things like uh, working, working with and leveraging data sets. Uh, we've recently seen Facebook make an absolute mockery of that and their abuse of, of, of data that they had access to, which I think is a real shame. But I do think technology and things like data provide tremendous opportunity. We just have to be smart about how we harness it and that we don't let some of the failures of, of, of missteps by, by organizations such as Facebook to deter us from continuing to try to figure out how we leverage these technologies and new opportunities to make the kind of changes that we need to. In episode six, the noted biophilic architect, Eric Corey Freed, 
said that what gave him hope was that we have seen so many social problems successfully addressed in the past, even if in fits and starts. And part of the answer is simply waiting for people to accept something we can now see as obvious. Here's a short excerpt of our conversation. What gives me hope is that, um, is that evolution in thinking is not a slow, gradual pace. Evolution is in fits and starts. You know, think about, think about some of our so- social issues like gay marriage, how it seemed at its darkest days, it'll never be allowed, it'll never be accepted. And I think within eight years in the U.S., suddenly it's kind of the law of the land. And so I started tracking these kind of movements in, in social history, racial segregation, um, what was the one with alcohol? Prohibition. Prohibition. <laughs> Smoking. And so it's amazing how suddenly it'll almost switch yeah. to, oh, I hate this, I hate this, eh, it's okay. And just deal with it. And so a lot of it is waiting for people just to accept something that you can already see as, as logical. And, and so that gives me hope, but also makes me realize that you know, at this point in our, in our human history, talking about carbon, talking about fossil fuels, talking about climate change is, is ugh, it's boring, it's depressing, blah, blah, blah. But eventually it'll just be part of the conversation the same way we talk about interest rates or ROI or, you know, or project schedules. It'll just be something built into our process. And, and I, I see it happening with our younger staff at Dialogue. Um, anyone between the ages of about 20 and 30, it's just part of the conversation it's an expectation that we're going to have to figure out how to do this oh yeah yeah well it's all been dumped on them so yeah, they, yeah. well they've got <laughs> they've got to pick up the pieces after the boomers left them the world exactly in episode seven i talked with professor pamela robinson pamela is the associate dean of graduate studies and strategic initiatives in the faculty of community services at ryerson university as well as an associate professor in the school of urban and regional planning When I asked her about whether she was optimistic about our ability to meet the significant environmental challenges we face going forward, she said, I'm both optimistic and sad. You know, it's it's hard because I'm so, it's hard to live here and not recognize all the things that we're not doing well. Um, But at the same time, I'm privileged enough to work in a space where new ideas are generated all the time. And some of those ideas actually find their way into action and make a difference on the ground. And so... I, I still hold this romantic notion that we will have leadership that will help us get there because I think people want, not everybody, but lots of people want to be part of something bigger and better than themselves. Like that hope still exists, right? If you look at, I don't know, like President Obama, for example, you know, he tapped into something that lots of people really wanted. They wanted to be inspired. Um, our current prime minister, you know, engaged all kinds of young people in a way that people that were surprised before. by. You know, I, in our most recent provincial election, in the lead up to the actual, the day when the election took place, one of the things that I took such great hope from on good old Facebook was my former students who I'm friends with, so many of them were deeply and politically engaged in poignant and powerful ways. And I loved how active they were. And I thought, this is great. And they, and they weren't always on the same page or voting for the same parties, but I love that they put themselves out there, you know, and so, so that part makes me hopeful. In my conversation with Brad Bradford in episode eight, we talked about both what gave Brad hope for the future and what keeps him going when things are looking dark. And interestingly, at the time we spoke, Brad was running for a highly contested seat on Toronto City Council. 
He won that seat, and I have to believe that one of the reasons for that win was Brad's core belief in doing the right thing, being optimistic, and surrounding himself with people who care about doing the right thing. Brad very succinctly summed up what gave him hope for the future in this brief excerpt from our conversation. For me, it's, it's all the fantastic, smart, passionate, and thoughtful people I've met along the way. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with people who really care about doing the right thing and are principled and deeply committed to their planning values. If we can always take it back to a conversation about our planning values, I think that generally gives us a good sense of the direction that we need to go and the steps that we need to take to get there. Dale Prest was a lot of fun to interview. Dale is the CEO of the Climate Forest Company and devises strategies to fight climate change through sustainable forest management. In episode nine, Dale and I talked about what gives him hope for the future. He told me it was the numbers. Here's Dale to explain. The numbers. I mean, the numbers are what really, and and this may sound strange um, because a lot of people will say, well, look at the numbers on climate change. It's it's too late. Um, I don't think that that's the case at all. And of course, my my background is not in global climate modeling. But um, when you look at the rate at which we could deploy our entire productive capacity as seven and a half billion people or however many we have on the planet right now, we could do this. We can absolutely do this. Those curves on, on solar energy and, and, and batteries, those cost curves coming down and knowing what we can do with our forests. I find that even climate scientists really underappreciate the value that our forests could play. And a lot of that is because people don't understand just how much we beat our forests up globally. You look at the amount of land that's been lost in, in places like Brazil, forest land, and, and here in, in the maritime provinces alone, we're small, but we could be pulling uh, 10 million tons of carbon out of the air every year, just this small little dot over here. So yeah, the, the numbers and the practical reality of it is, is what, what, what keeps me going. The last interview of 2018 was with my old grad school classmate, Rahul Marotra, now a professor and director of the Urban Design Program at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. In the following excerpt from our conversation, we talked about his optimism for the future, but also about the need for us to construct better and more productive narratives for how we can live together. We've known each other for many years now, and I've always known you as a very optimistic person. So let me ask you, how hopeful are you about whether we're going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? Uh, you know, I am, I am optimistic, I think. I think it'll be a combination of a crisis. It'll be a combination, and, and a very important part of this conversation, contingent on all of us, is how we reconstruct these narratives. I mean, if you go back and just look at religion, Craig, I mean, I'm just saying this in a very simplistic way, but I think it does make sense, is that, you know, when, I mean, look at the origins of Hinduism and look at the origins of, say, let's say, Islam and Christianity and Judaism. You know, those three latter religions came out of landscapes of strife, difficult landscapes of, uh, 
which were non-productive. These were desert landscapes. It was about loving your neighbor. It was about community. Uh, and all the dictums of those religions were about that. Hinduism grows out of the tropics of wealth, uh, of, 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 of a surfeit of food and you know all of that. And what does Hinduism tell us? It propagates individualism. And that's why now in California, all mm. the gurus and the yoga happens because they are sort of dealing with an individualism that comes out of wealth and affluence. Right. And so religions played this role in the past uh, of defining what the problem was and helping communities organize themselves in a particular way productively. So I'm not arguing for religion, but I'm arguing that now as a species, because that's the word you use, with the technologies that we have at hand, I think we have to construct good narratives, productive narratives that are communicated in ways. And that's why every initiative such as this is an important one, uh, which will be become the new religion, which will become the new way that communities and societies can organize themselves. I think it's become such a laissez-faire it's be- situation. It's become such a, you know, we are, we, are, we, are, we are going through this evolution where we suddenly have the instruments of these technologies but haven't yet been able to use them in productive enough ways, I believe. It's very clear that we face a very steep uphill climb as we try to meet the difficult challenges of the 21st century imperative. But I think, as my conversations with thinkers and activists like the ones we've just heard demonstrate, even in these times of anxiety about the future, there's also reason for hope and optimism. In her 2016 book, Hope in the Dark, Rebecca Solnit makes a case for hope as a commitment to act in a world where our future appears dark and uncertain. In the introductory chapter of the book, she makes a case for hope being the common thread that ties together all important change. Let me read a paragraph that I think so effectively captures her argument for the importance of hope. Cause and effect assumes history marches forward, but history is not an army. It is a crab scuttling sideways a drip of soft water wearing away stone, an earthquake breaking centuries of tension. Sometimes one person inspires a movement, or her words do decades later. Sometimes a few passionate people change the world. Sometimes they start a mass movement, and millions do. Sometimes those millions are stirred by the same outrage or the same ideal, and change comes upon us like a change of weather. All that these transformations have in common is that they begin in the imagination, in hope. It couldn't be said better than that. Thanks again for listening. It's a great pleasure producing this podcast and having the opportunity to interview some of the most insightful people I know. I look forward to another year of podcasts where we will continue to explore the approaches and insights of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative. I'm again looking forward to working with Derek Wellsman, our amazing sound editor, and Heather Goddard, who will be keeping us on schedule and organizing the interviews. Unfortunately, we will be losing Aaron Masters, our assistant producer, who will be leaving us to pursue a career in social work. So I'd like to wish her all the best and to thank her very much again for her wonderful assistance in producing our 2018 podcasts. Erin is a great example of a millennial devoting her working life to solving a really meaningful challenge, working to make our society a better place for all. Go Erin. I look forward to the coming year. All the best until our next podcast.